going to be in Colossians 3, verse 12 this morning. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your work of grace and redemption in our lives. We thank you for each person that's been baptized. And as we come and read your word, such an important section of scripture, pray that you give us ears to hear and that we really ap- apply these things. So Father, would you be gracious to send your spirit to us, to lead us and guide us in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle Paul in the first two chapters of Colossians does such a great job of laying the groundwork of who Jesus is and the preeminence of Christ in our lives. If for some reason you missed those studies, I'd encourage you to go back to the website to listen to those, to the, to the podcast, because as we get into chapter three, we shift gears. And the gear is, how do we apply the things that we've learned? What does it mean for Jesus to be first in our lives? This position that we have in Christ, now how do we make that practical? What does it look like on a daily basis to live this relationship with the Lord, life in Christ? Last week we saw where to set our mind on things above, where to put off these things from the old man, the garments from our life before Christ, kind of that old t-shirt, if you would, or that old flannel that you need to get rid of. It's long, lasted its time. Well, we have these things from our past life, anger and malice and ill will to lay those things aside. And then this week is the things that we're to put on. In this paragraph, there's four imperatives in the Greek. Four commands that are given to us in the Greek that we're going to focus on. Our family, we got a new puppy about four months ago. Her name's Quinn, and I give her some imperatives, right? When I'm training her, I'll say, Quinn, sit. And in my mind, that's not a suggestion. In my mind, that's not like, if you feel like it, go ahead and and do this. And it's the same way with imperatives in the scripture, is these are actually commands, These are not suggestions, but God in his love for us and knowing what's best for us is commanding these things in our lives. So verse 12, therefore, as the elect of God, we're first reminded who we are as the elect of God. Isn't it great to be chosen? Doesn't it feel good to be chosen? Even back to elementary school, recess, it's a pickup game of football. There's two captains, you're chosen. Isn't it one of the wonderful things about marriage is you're chosen? If you apply for a new job and you get hired, you get chosen, you get accepted into a college, you've been chosen. You have been chosen by the person that matters the most. Maybe you've experienced a lot of rejection in your life. If you know Christ, you are the elect of God. You are chosen by God. We're the elect of God. Also, we're holy. What does that mean? We're set apart, we're consecrated. When you receive Christ as your Savior, we became set apart. We became holy. We belong to the Lord. Our life doesn't belong to us any longer. And also, we're beloved and beloved. This is a title to wear with thanksgiving, that we're loved by God. How do we know that we're loved by God? Because God gave his only begotten Son, in whom he's well pleased. His beloved Son, he gave what was most valuable to him, his son, to die on the cross for us so that we could experience the love of God, that we're loved by the Lord. So in light of who we are, then put on tender mercies. 
put on tender mercies. So the first imperative, the first command is garments that shine. There's something that we're to put on. That word put on is the command. It is an action that we're supposed to take. So this does teach us that there is a choice on our parts. That we get to choose to say, I want to put these things on in my life. I want to put on tender mercy. Mercy is not giving somebody the judgment or the consequence they deserve. They're guilty. They deserve it. But instead of giving that consequence, we withhold that consequence and we grant to them mercy. God is merciful to us. Every day his mercies are new in our lives. The way that we're to give mercy is with tenderness because sometimes mercy is not very tender. Sometimes as we give mercy, it's more with the attitude, hey, you should have known better. And if you ever do that again, you're going to get it, right? I'm letting you off this time, but that's it. If you've ever been on the receiving end of that kind of mercy, how does it feel? You feel shamed, right? And you're pretty much saying, I'd rather have the consequence. If that's the tone in which this is going to come down, I'd rather just take the consequence. We have a compassionate, loving Heavenly Father that gives mercy to us in tenderness. So as we extend mercy, as we put on mercy, we want to extend it with tenderness. So what might this look like in daily life? How may this look in traffic? Is there a need for some tender mercy in traffic? So much construction in the city right now. It's crazy. Like you, everywhere you go, it feels like a lane is ending due to construction. So here you are. You've done the right thing. You've gotten over because there's a lane that is ending. And you did it in an appropriate time. But then there's someone who has chosen to wait till the last minute, right? What do you do, right? So tender mercy lets them in. Just slow down, say, I'm going to let you in. What does justice do? You knucklehead, you ignored the sign for a half mile. So you're going to stay right there, right? Or maybe decide to be merciful and let them in, but let them have it. Like, come on, man, get off your phone, get off your phone, right? So Tender mercy can go a long way uh, in traffic. So now I'm going to have to watch my driving habits. You might be like, <laughs> have to give tender mercy to Eric on the, on the road. In our relationships with each other, how far would, would mercy go? Say, you know what? I, I don't need to drop the consequence right now. I don't have to bring judgment on you right now, even though you deserve it. I'm going to bring tender mercy into your life. How would it look in the workplace maybe to extend some mercy to someone and to do it in tenderness. It leads to the next thing to put on is kindness. Kindness. This is something that's really missing in our culture, in our country, in our nation. There's a lack of kindness. There's a lack of civility. As we put on kindness, we're able to reflect the love of Jesus Christ in a powerful way. These are garments that shine these are garments that really stand out. Even in times when we're talking with someone where we have opposing views, to be able to do that in kindness. How would kindness look in the workplace? How would kindness look in 
our families and in neighborhoods? And how would that glorify Christ? How would that be a witness to who Jesus is? Kindness will glorify the Lord and kindness will enrich relationships. Who doesn't want to be around a kind person? It's just enjoyable to be around someone who treats you with kindness. How would marriages change if we put on kindness? Unfortunately, we tend to be most unkind to those that we love the most. There's no doubt. We love our families the most, but they're the ones that we can be unkind to. And to choose to say, I want to put on kindness. I want to treat my spouse, my kids with kindness. Put on kindness. Then humility. Put on humility. Humility is an accurate view of God and an accurate view of ourselves. In Isaiah chapter 6, we find the prophet where he had, for five chapters, pronounced judgment, righteous judgment. Woe is you, woe is you, woe is you. God had told him to pronounce this judgment. But something changed in chapter 6. It says, the year you, King Uzziah, died, I saw the Lord. As he saw a vision of the Lord in God's throne room, he says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Humility in Isaiah the prophet as he saw who God was. As we see God who he is revealed in scripture, what's going to result in our lives is a humility. I've got an accurate view of God and I've got an accurate view of myself. I realize God's holiness, his greatness, his grace, and I realize my sin. Walking then in that humility. Humility is something actually we can pursue. Humility is something that we can put on. Humility is not something where we're always putting ourselves down. Humility is not where we doubt the love of God in our lives. I think true, genuine humility is be able to recognize God's love in our lives, even recognize the strengths that he's given us, the gifts and the talents that he's given us, but also to realize our sin and to realize our weaknesses. So to put on humility, to pursue humility. God loves humility. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Then meekness, to put on meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power under control. Think of a stallion. So powerful, but yet trained to where you can control this mighty horse. You may even argue that how good is power if you can't control it? So meekness is power under control. God wants you to be powerful. God wants you to be passionate. He wants you to be strong in the Lord, but to be meek. And this is why this is the garment of Christ, because Christ is meek. He is the fullness of power under control. Long-suffering, what does long-suffering mean? It means to suffer long suffer for a really, really long time. In light of our text, in light of the conversation here, it's to suffer long with an individual. There's financial suffering, there's physical suffering, there's lots of different kinds of suffering, but this is particularly in dealing with others. How do we know this? Verse 13, bearing with one another. So we're to be long-suffering in bearing with one another. Now, this phrase, bearing with one another, almost sounds like we're just tolerating each other. I'm just putting up with you. You're putting up with me. But the word bear, it actually means to endure, to be patient, and to accept someone. So as we're suffering long with someone, we're actually accepting who they are, 
and their struggles and their weakness and, and their sin, not desiring that they would not change. Of course, we love them enough to say, man, I'd love to see God bring change in your life, but we're not the ones that are going to provide that change. Maybe you're dating here and you're considering getting married and you've got this list going on in your mind. Come on, we know we all do it. Here's the characteristics I really like about this person that I'm dating. But there's a couple of things that I don't like, and maybe a few things that are sinful, and a few things that drive me nuts, but I'm convinced that once I'm married to them for six months or maybe a year, I'm going to change these things about them, right? So let's just say for sake of argument, they're not very clean and organized, tidy, and you are the epitome of organization and cleanliness. I'm going to get them, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just whip them into shape and transformation is going to take place. Now, why the laughter? Because married couples know it doesn't work like that. The reality is, is most likely, if you do get married 20 years from now, your spouse will still struggle in those areas. There may be some growth, but the reality of it is, is they will probably still struggle in those areas. And are you willing to suffer along with them? Are you willing to bear with them and accept them for their strengths and their weaknesses? And that's what God desires for us to do for each other relationally. And putting on these new garments that shine is to say, I'm willing to suffer long with someone. I'm willing to bear with them. With people in our families, but also co-workers and neighbors and people that don't know Christ as their Savior. What a great witness to someone who doesn't know Jesus to say, I'm just going to bear with them. I, I'm going to suffer along with them. I'm really going to accept them. I'm going to do more than tolerate them. I'm going to accept them. What keeps us from doing this, what keeps us from bearing with someone is bitterness, and that's what Paul addressed next. And forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another... Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Forgiveness is not an option. It's something that God commands for us to do. Here we see if, if anyone has a complaint against another. Maybe as I've been speaking this morning, you have a couple of names that are coming to mind. You've got that difficult person in your life, and it has resulted in some bitterness. Hebrews 12 warns us about the root of bitterness because it defiles many. It's going to defile you. It's going to defile all your relationships. Bitterness over a person that hurts us bleeds into other relationships. And so God is calling us to forgive. God is calling us to let go of the complaint, to let go of the laundry list. Why? Because Christ has forgiven us. And how has Christ forgiven us? He has forgiven us by grace, through his sacrifice, completely. Completely forgiven us and chosen to wash away our sins. So as we receive that forgiveness of Christ, we extend that forgiveness to someone else. Maybe you've heard me share on this before, but my personal experience has been that if someone has really hurt me on a deep level, I never feel like forgiving. I never have these warm fuzzies of like, oh, wouldn't it be so great to forgive them? 
No, what I'm wrestling with is I don't feel like forgiving him. My emotions are saying, do everything opposite of forgiveness. And it's God's spirit wrestling with my heart to say, Eric, you need to forgive. Begins with a choice of the will that looks something like this. I choose to forgive this person because Christ has forgiven me. And I would encourage you to say it out loud, to make that choice today. I choose to forgive so-and-so because Christ has forgiven me. Begin to pray for them. And not prayers like, God, I hope you break their teeth. (laughs) But pray for them and things that you would desire in your life. What would you desire in your life? Oh man, I'd really love for the Lord to bless my family relationships. God, it'd be great if you continue to provide my financial needs. I'd like to know you in a greater way, right? These core things that we all desire, begin to pray that for the other person. And as I'm going through this, I don't feel like it. And the prayers feel hypocritical. And maybe I choose to do that one day and I've got to keep choosing to forgive. Do it over and over. Keep choosing to to pray. But over time, what happens is God does a work in my heart. And he allows my emotions to start to come along with that decision, a choice of the will to forgive. But here's the message. If you wait till you feel like it to forgive, you're never going to forgive. It's got to be a choice of obedience. It's got to be a choice of the will to say, I am choosing to forgive this person. The unwillingness to suffer long with them, the unwillingness to bear with them, comes back to that root of bitterness. All of this, these garments that shine, are summed up in verse 14. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Above all of these things, put on love. So you may not remember the list of all these put-ons, but you will remember love. Am I acting in the love of God? Can I define the way that I'm treating this person with the love of God? Put on God's love because it encompasses all things. It's above all things. If you don't have love, if we don't have love, we don't have anything. And love is the bond of perfection. Love is what's going to hold us together more than anything else. Guys, these garments that shine, they really, really, really work. They really do. And this to me is day-to-day Christian living, life in Christ. Because we're struggling with our flesh and our sin and these old garments. We're wanting to treat this person with anger. We're wanting to treat them with bitterness. There's this temptation for lust and for covetousness. Christ in us is the hope of glory. So to rely upon Jesus and then choose with our will to say, you know what, this is not who I am anymore. And I know that if I respond in anger, it's only going to bring destruction. God can't work in my anger. So I'm choosing to put that off. And now I want to approach this with tender mercy. Now I want to approach this with kindness. Now I want to approach this in humility. What maybe have I done wrong that I'm not seeing that is now causing this conflict? And if we choose these put-ons, God's truth sets us free. You're going to start to see God work in relationships. We're going to start to see God use our lives in a greater way and be able to be a witness of Jesus Christ because these garments, they really do shine. So I would encourage you, man, meditate upon this section of Scripture. 
pray through it and seek to apply it. Say, I want to put these things off and I want to put these things on. The second imperative is in verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body. The word rule is the command. The word rule is the imperative. And it's peace that rules. God grants to us his peace that would rule our hearts. The word rule is an umpire that judges. If you're watching a a volleyball match, you have the line judge. And what does the line judge do? As the ball lands on the line or close to the line, it's in. It's good. It counts. It's out of bounds. The peace of God is that very practical guidance in our lives to say, hey, you're in bounds. You're exactly where I want you to be. Are those those times and those moments where we are following the Lord and listening to his leading and saying yes, and we walk in these things and you just feel the peace of God. Man, this is how God wants me handling this. And I feel God's peace in the midst of this. But then there's other times where we are handling it in anger. We are handling it with the old garments and we don't feel God's peace. We feel God pulling back on us saying, hey, Eric, don't do that in your anger. Hey, don't, don't be unkind to that person. You, you need to back off here. And that peace is that literal guidance that the Lord provides to us. The children of Israel in the Old Testament, as they were coming out of Egypt into the promised land, says that they were led by a cloud by day. And the, they were under the cloud. Wouldn't you be under the cloud? Shade in the hot sun. So where is the peace of God? Where, where is the shade? I, I know that God's peace is here and God's peace is ruling in my hearts and in my mind. Sometimes as we're watching TV, watching something on Netflix or or Amazon, some screen, all of a sudden you're like, man, I just, I just don't feel God's peace in this. And our mind begins to justify and go, well, I know other believers that watch this. I watched worse stuff than this when I was 13. I can handle this. I got the fast forward button, right? I can, I, can, I can click through this, but for whatever reason, God's peace isn't there in the room, and the Lord's saying, I've got something better for you. That's that umpire saying, this is inbounds, this is, this is out of bounds, and we allow God's peace to rule in our hearts and our lives. Church, there's nothing better of knowing, man, I've got peace with God right now. Now, please don't misunderstand. It's not that we lose our salvation or we're not the ch- child of God, but it's just a great place to be in to go, oh, I've got God's peace right now. I'm where God wants me to be. I'm behaving the way that the Lord would want me to behave. Verse 16, the third imperative, and be thankful. Be thankful. The command is be. God wants us to be in that state or that condition of being thankful. And it's a thanksgiving that resounds. It's a thanksgiving that glorifies the Lord and a thanksgiving that blesses others. On Wednesday night, we're going through the book of Exodus. Going through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. This previous Wednesday night, we were in Exodus 16 and 17. The children of Israel had just gotten delivered from Pharaoh. Pharaoh is drowned in the Red Sea. They crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. Exodus 15 is this awesome worship service. Lights, smoke, Miriam leading the way, electric guitar solos. I mean, everybody was just there celebrating the deliverance of God. Get into chapter 16, they're worried about meat and bread. 
And they begin to complain because we don't have meat and we don't have bread. Where do they go in their complaining spirit? And complaining is the opposite of thanksgiving. First place that they go in their complaining was against Moses and against Aaron. Complaining about the leadership that God had provided in their life. Church, that's low-hanging fruit. It's easy to complain about the authority that God has placed in your life. That's where a complaining spirit will, will go. Next, they start to think it was better in the past. Specifically when they were in Egypt. Going, well, when we were back there in Egypt, we had flame and yawn. We had such good bread. It was Panera bread, bagels every morning, fresh. What was it really like as slaves in Egypt for 400 years? It wasn't that, but they're not remembering the past accurately. And we can look back even before we knew Christ our Savior in a complaining spirit and go, oh man, it was so good before I knew the Lord. Then they determine that their fate is going to be death. God brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, doubting God's, God's promises. And if we allow complaining to go far enough, we'll convince ourselves that God doesn't have anything good for us left in this life. That he's not going to use us, that he's not going to show us things. We're pretty much just dead in the water. Complaining is powerful, but thanksgiving is even more powerful. As we choose to be thankful, as we put on thanksgiving. In the Psalms, David oftentimes would speak to his soul. Oh my soul, bless the Lord. Have you ever noticed that? He's actually speaking to himself, to his mind, his emotion, and his will, saying, I'm going to bless the Lord. As he does that, his tone changes. It goes from focusing on the difficulty to who God is. As this thanksgiving takes place in our lives, it makes room for the word of God. In verse 16, let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom. This is the fourth command. It's dwell. It's actually an action. It's words that dwell. We're allowing, we're choosing for the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. See, in our hearts, in our lives, something's going to dwell there. And is it the words of Christ? Or is it this anger and this malice and this lust and this covetousness? This will change the way that we approach Scripture. If we approach Scripture saying, I want this stuff in me. I need God's truth in me. It will change the way we come and hear God's word together on Sunday mornings, Saturday nights, Wednesday nights. If we approach the word of God when we're reading it on our own saying, I want this in me. I really need the word of God to dwell inside of me. More so than this just being a checklist where I check off that I read my Bible this morning. Some of you may be saying, well, how do I do that? How do I practically make the word of God dwell inside of me? A few things. First is pray before you read. Pray before you read and ask that the Holy Spirit would teach you. You've got the greatest teacher living inside of you. I'd encourage you to read through a book of the Bible. They're written as books, and so read it as a book, and it'll help you understand in a greater way. Choose a book of the Bible. Say, I want to read through it. Maybe it's the book of Proverbs. Read a half a chapter a day or a chapter a day, and then come with expectation that God's going to speak to you. Come with a pen and paper or a highlighter, a place to write down a verse, copy and paste it, text it to yourself so that you can meditate upon it. I always get more out of God's word when I meditate upon it. 
Just start to think it through and pray it through and then seek to apply it. But may we get hungry. May we get desperate to this point of saying, I want the word of God to dwell in me. I want it to dwell richly and deeply in me. Next week, we're going to look at family relationships and work relationships. And it's really difficult to live out the relationships that God is calling us to if this is not the state that we're living in. Because God's word is what empowers us to be able to live these truths out. So notice what happens as God's word is dwelling in us. Then we're teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. There's an overflow effect. As we read God's word, hopefully we're getting impacted by the grace of God. That's the message of the truth of scripture. That God loves sinners. That he died for sinners. That he's given us his son. And as we're touched with who God is through the revelation of Scripture, hopefully there's this song of grace that's inside of us where we want to sing to the Lord. God created your mouth to be able to sing. And he wants you to sing to the Lord. Now, some of us are more geared and wired towards singing. Some of us can sing on key. Some of us are tone deaf, right? So maybe you're in that category where you say, I don't really like singing. Singing's not for me. I'm not good at singing. You know, God doesn't give you an out on that. He doesn't say to us, well, if you like singing, praise me. Through the Psalms, once again, we're commanded to sing and we're commanded to praise the Lord. When we get to heaven, we're all going to be singing and praising the Lord. So maybe this is something new for you. And as you start to resonate with God's grace, let it out. Start singing. Maybe you're like, I'm too old for that. You're not too old for that. Maybe you're like, I'm too young for that. You're not too young for that. The words are on the screens. Have you guys noticed that? (laughs) So you can sing them and sing them out to, to the Lord and express that thanksgiving to the Lord. Here corporately, but also in the car, and at home, and in the workplace. Just sing to the Lord, because God is is so good. And what happens is we hear other people sing to the Lord, and it teaches us, and it admonishes us, it encourages, encourages us. You know, sometimes I come in, and my heart's not in the right place, and I'm, I'm not ready to sing, and I hear you guys singing, and it moves me to say, man, I want to sing to the Lord. Sometimes at home, one of my kids or Amber will be singing a worship song to the Lord. And I can't get that stinking worship song out of my head, right? And it's wonderful and it's beautiful and it changes my attitude and it teaches me and it admonishes me. Because songs stick with us in a way that nothing else does. It's the way that God made us. So I have a new idea. I'm going to start singing my sermons. (laughs) Be ready next week. That's where it's going. Church attendance is going to go way down, right? I was thinking with a banjo. But songs really stick with us. So as you're singing to the Lord, as this grateful heart filled with the word of God is being expressed, people around you are being taught and people around you are being admonished. So this culminates in verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him.
And whatever you do, in word or deed, all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Lord means that he's our master, that he's our king, that he's our authority. Jesus is that he is our savior. It literally means savior of our sins. When we talk about doing things in the name of Jesus, it's not attaching just the name of Christ to whatever we're doing, but it's doing things in accordance with his character and nature. So do my actions and my words line up with who I know Jesus to be? Everything that we do has the potential to be worship. It's not so much about the activity, but it's about the way that we do the activity. And sometimes we see this over here is worship and this over here is not worship. It's all worship. It all has the potential to be able to be worship. There's times where we do the dishes in the name of Jesus. And it's a beautiful thing. And there's times where we don't do the dishes in the name of Jesus, right? There's times where we go to work and we do our work in the name of Jesus. And then there's times where we go and we don't do the work in the name of Jesus. The encouragement, the encouraging thing in this is that Christ in you is the hope of glory. That's the end of chapter one. And since Christ is in us, he can empower us to live this way as we surrender to him, as we seek his help and direction. But God chooses to meet us in obedience. When we choose to obey, when we choose with our will to begin to recognize, you know what? This anger is not right anymore. These are old garments. This lust is not right. This covetousness is not right. And I'm going to choose now to put these things on. I'm going to choose tender mercy. I'm going to choose kindness. I'm going to choose love. As we make that choice to let the peace of God rule in our hearts, as we make that choice to be thankful, as we make the choice to let God's word dwell in us, to get after it and begin to study it, meditate upon it, and apply it. When we choose to, to sing to the Lord, then God meets us in that obedience, and he does more than we could ever do. Sometimes I think we want God's w- to work in our lives, but we're not willing to take a step of obedience. So I'm over here telling God, God, I want you to work in my life. God, I want you to work in my life. I want you to do the impossible. I want you to change me. I want you to use me. And God's like, okay, put on these things. I don't really want to do any of those things. I, I really don't want to change the complaining thing. I'm, I'm, I'm going to stay, stay right where I'm at with that. I really like the old flannel. You know, the old t-shirt. It's great. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm comfortable in that. And the Lord's like, okay. But when we get to that place where we say, okay, okay, Lord, I, I want to choose obedience. I need your strength. I need your power. But I'm, I'm choosing obedience. I'm seeking to be obedient to you and what you've commanded me to do. Then he comes and he begins to do the supernatural. Would you join me in prayer? Father, would you help us to live these things out? We can't do it on our own. We're going to head out these doors, and there's going to be real struggles and real challenges. And we'll even attempt to do the put-offs and the put-ons, and we'll, we'll fail. 
But would you help us through the power of your Holy Spirit? And we do want to choose to forgive. We do want to choose to put on tender mercy. We do choose thanksgiving in our lives. We want your peace to rule in our hearts. May we see how your truth really does work and how relationships will change as we walk in your truth. How our lives can be a light that shines as we live inside of these things. So we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.